Today, we want to continue on in our series, Christmas Through the Eyes of Various People. Last week, if you were here or you were online um, with us, you remember that we looked at Christmas Through the Eyes of Mary. And we spent most of our time in Luke chapter 1. Um, but this week, we want to focus on another character who, if we think about him in terms of the, the bulk of the times that he's mentioned in the Bible, is basically considered to be a minor character. Um, that is the person of Joseph. But uh, what I want to do today is t turn our eyes to Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. We're not going to look at all of the passages. I don't want to steal Pastor Nick's sermon for next Sunday. Uh, but we want to focus in on uh, some material related to the person of Joseph. And so today the sermon is entitled Christmas Through the Eyes of Joseph. Now before we take a look at the text, which will be from Matthew 1 and Matthew 2, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman in the fullness of time. You sent your son to be the savior, to redeem for himself a people. And this morning, as we look at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we see the story of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word and that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive that truth and apply it to our lives so that we might be faithful living examples of all that God has done and is doing and will do. Cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in a very similar fashion to what we did last week, I, the outline is basically the same, only we've substituted Joseph for Mary. So I want to talk a little bit at the beginning about who is Joseph. Do a little bit of a character study so we know who he is going into reading through chapter 1. But once we know a little bit about who this Joseph person is, I want to look at three scenes. Last week we looked at three scenes with Mary from the Gospel of Luke. This week we want to look at three scenes from the Gospel of Matthew. Scene number one is from uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, where Joseph will name a son. You think, big deal. What's, why is that important? Well, trust me. It's very, 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 very important. Scene number two is we're going to jump down to the middle of chapter 2 uh, because we're not skipping over that material. That material talks about the wise men. That will be the sermon on Boxing Day, December 26th. So if you're saying, wait, you, you missed a part. Uh, yeah, we missed it today, but we'll get back to it, so don't worry. Okay, so scene number two will be in the middle of chapter two, and that's going to look at verses 13 to 15, where Joseph takes Jesus to Egypt. And scene number three follows on from there, and that is in verses 19 through 23, where Joseph returns Jesus to Israel. Now, the thing to notice in each of these scenes as we work our way through them is in each scene, there is a repeated pattern that comes across. In each scene, 
an angel will appear to Joseph in a dream. And in fact, in the last scene, uh, the angel will, will appear to him twice. The second appearance doesn't go into much detail. But in every scene that we will see today, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Last week, uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. It wasn't in a dream, but he appeared to her. The other interesting thing about each of these scenes is the same Greek word. It's translated in English differently in each part, and I'll, I'll uh, alert you to each time it's used. But the Greek verb egero, egero, which I'm translating very colloquially with the phrase get up, get up. And this verb appears several times uh, the, in the first scene, it appears once. In the second and third scenes, it appears several times. Get up. Get up. Do something. And I'll alert you to, to when that verb is used. The final thing that we will see in each of these scenes is that Matthew is very careful to include a reference from the Old Testament to show that this action, this saying, this idea fulfills something from the Old Testament. So there's going to be an angel, get up, Old Testament quotation in each of these. All right? So that gives you some, something to look for as we go through. So let's start with who is Joseph? Let's figure out who this person is and how he fits in to this story. Well, if you've read the Bible at all, or you've watched any, not on CHFI on the radio, but on, on TV, if you've ever seen the Christmas story, you know some basic details about Joseph. Joseph is the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. Now, like most men, you may ask, what do you do for a living? What's your job? And we know from Matthew 13, verse 55, that the role he took to make money for the family was he was, and the Greek word is, a tectone, a tectone. Now, uh, lots of English Bibles translate this as the word carpenter, but it's actually a more general word which can indicate any sort of craftsman who works in wood or metal or stone. And I like to think of, of Joseph as a stone worker because it fits a lot with what Jesus talks about later in his ministry about being the stone that the builder rejected. If Jesus is the son of Joseph, I'm sure his early life was filled with work helping his father working on these things, whether it be stone or wood or metal. So this was his job. Now in terms of description in the Bible, he is mentioned very, very rarely. By the time we get to the end of the story in each of the Gospels, Joseph has disappeared. Mary is there. She is there when Jesus is on the cross. And yet Joseph seems to have disappeared. Maybe he died. I don't know. But he's, he's off the scene. So all we get about Joseph is he plays an important role here in the infancy narratives in Matthew 1 and 2 and in Luke 1 and 2. But after that, he's only mentioned by name five or six more times. 
And that is simply to identify Jesus as the son of Joseph. But Joseph doesn't take any more active role in the story of Jesus in the Gospels beyond what we want to look at today. The other interesting thing that we notice about Joseph when we examine all of these materials is Joseph never, ever, 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 ever talks. He never says anything. When the Gospels record Joseph as a character in the story, he's always doing something. But he never speaks. He never, ever speaks in the Bible. The last thing that we can say about Joseph before we look at each of these stories or each of these scenes is that Joseph is probably not a rich guy. Now today, if you work in the trades, if you're a plumber or you're a carpenter, you can make pretty good money. But we know that Joseph was not a rich man. How do we know that? Because when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, there were two offerings that you could give for a firstborn. One was the regular offering, and another was a couple of birds that you could sacrifice instead. And that was for poor people to offer. And when Jesus was dedicated, they offered the poor person's offering. So Joseph is this craftsman, lives in the first century, is from the tribe of Judah, and he is not a wealthy man. So that's a little bit of background about who this Joseph guy is. So let's see what he does in this infancy narrative of Jesus. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, starts his book right away with a genealogy. Luke has a genealogy as well, but he waits until chapter 3 to include his genealogy. But this is the first place that Joseph appears, which is at the end of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, 1 to 17. Now, in this genealogy, Matthew is trying to do something very, very specific. And as I said, Joseph shows up at the very end of this genealogy. He starts out by describing Jesus, in verse 1, as the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then he goes through and says, this one was the father of this one, 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 on and on and on. And then at the end, he points out something very important. He says that from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to Jesus, each of those time frames, he has listed 14 generations. 14. And you say to yourself, hmm, that's nice. 14, 14, 14. Okay, that's nice. What's the big deal? Because verse 17, he makes very careful reference. Notice that there are 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. Why? 
Why is he making such a big deal of that? Well, in the Hebrew language that is spoken in Israel, they don't use numbers like we do. In English, we say one, two, three, four, five. That's how we count, right? But in Hebrew, they would use letters of the alphabet as numbers. So if we were using English, A would be one, B would be two, C would be three, and so on. And then you get into the tens and the twenties and the thirties, and they can make uh, big numbers using the letters of the alphabet. Okay, so what? Well, the interesting thing is the word for David in Hebrew is Dawid, and it is three letters. A Dalit, a Vav, and a Dalit. I say, oh, I didn't know I'd come to church and get a Hebrew lesson. Here's the point. Dalit, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. That's the fourth letter of the alphabet. That's a four. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav. Number six is the Vav. So if you have a four and a six... And a four, what does that add up to? A four and a six and a four. Now it's math class. What does that add up to? Fourteen. How many generations were there from Abraham to David? Fourteen. How many generations from David to the exile? How many generations from the exile to Jesus? What does the number 14 represent? David. So Matthew is emphasizing Jesus is not only the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, he's the son of David, he's the son of David. And he is showing that Jesus is the king by emphasizing this genealogical line. But when we get to the end of this genealogy, this is where Joseph shows up and all along the way he has been telling us this one was the father of this one, was the father of this one, was the father of this one. But when we get to Joseph, the pattern changes. Look at verse 16. It says, and Jacob, not Jacob uh, from the Old Testament, but Jacob is actual father. Jacob, the father of Joseph. Now, it doesn't say the father of Jesus because he's not the father of Jesus, Right? We know from what we read last week in Luke's gospel that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. And what is in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God. Joseph has nothing to do with this. So what does the text say? Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the Messiah. In other words, Matthew introduces this person, Joseph, but he's very careful to say that Joseph is not the father of Jesus. He is the husband of Mary. Now you say to yourself, well, that seems kind of dumb. Why would he make special reference to Joseph then if Joseph isn't really the father 
of Jesus. And it's sort of like a, a wink, wink, or a nudge, nudge kind of idea that, you know, he, everybody thinks he's the father of Jesus, but he's really not. No, that's not what Matthew is doing. Because the rest of chapter one is going to show us how does Jesus fit into this genealogy so that Joseph is included and Jesus becomes part of the line of Joseph that Matthew traces all the way back to the exile, to David and to Abraham. How does that connection get made? And that's where we end up in our first scene where Joseph names a son. And that's in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. So if you look at those verses, I'll read them to you. It says, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Remember, he's just said, Joseph was the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. So how did all that work then? How is Jesus actually born? So he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew is explaining to us, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Now, in North American culture, we might substitute the word engaged here, but that would actually not be a very good correspondence to the situation that Mary and Joseph are in. If a couple gets engaged in North America and things don't work out for whatever reason, they just break it off and say, bye, thank you, drive safely, bye-bye. That's the end. And everybody goes home and you move on. But the word for betrothed here, or the idea of being betrothed, is much stronger and much deeper than just simply being engaged. In Jewish culture, when a couple would decide, or the families really, not the couple themselves, the families would decide to get married. The husband would come and he would bring a dowry for the wife to pay the bride price, it's called. And from the moment he has paid that bride price, the couple are considered married. They are married in Jewish culture. They are married. However, they do not live together usually for about one year after this financial transaction has taken place and the husband and wife are married, the husband goes back to his home for usually about one year. And during that one year time, he prepares a home for their family. And once that preparation is done, then the husband comes back and takes his wife to their home and they live together as a couple. You see this played out in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew, I think it's 24, uh, where they're waiting for the bridegroom to come and come back. So what are we talking about here? 
Joseph and Mary are in this in-between time where he has come to her family, he has paid the bride price, she and he are now married to each other, but they are not living together. So that's what the text says. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Joseph does not know where this child came from. Now, he's going to find out in a couple of verses because he has a dream. But before he has this dream, he doesn't know where this child came from. And so, from, from the first century perspective, his wife either was attacked or was fooling around. So, Joseph is now in a bind. What is he going to do? How is he going to deal with this? So verse 19 tells us, And her husband, Joseph, because he is her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What we see here is Matthew describes Joseph as a just man a righteous person, someone who takes the law seriously, but is also a kind person. That's what's all wrapped up in this idea of him being a just man. He does the right thing, but he does the right thing in a kind way. Now, what Joseph could have done, according to the law, he was fully within his rights. He could have totally embarrassed Mary. He could have brought her up on charges, brought her up in front of a large group of people, publicly accused her, and then said, I divorce you. And she would have been shamed in front of the whole community. It's even possible, according to the law, wasn't typically done in the first century, but he could have insisted that she be stoned to death. Now, that wasn't done very often in the first century, but that was one option that the law gave. But instead, Joseph, being a righteous person and a kind person, doesn't want to put her to shame. Instead, he resolved to divorce her quietly. In other words, the law required a minimum of two people to look at the evidence and make a decision and then Joseph could say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And when he says the third time, I divorce you, they're divorced. That's the end. So Joseph, we get a little hint of who this Joseph man is. He's a person who wants to be faithful to God, who wants to do the right thing, but he is also a good person, a kind person. And he doesn't want to make Mary look bad. But he knows, or he thinks anyway, there's some problem. Something has gone wrong. But then we get to verse 20. And verse 20 says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So at the moment that Joseph is considering what to do, I have to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing, but I want to do the right thing in, in a kind way. An angel comes to him and says, wait a minute, things aren't the way you think they are. This is not exactly what you think. Instead, take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary knows that. Now, Joseph knows that. But not everybody else knows that. And so Joseph is a person now who has to put up with people around him saying, that's the guy his wife fooled around on him before they got married. That's that guy who, you know, his wife, that, that's not really his kid. But Joseph is told he is from the Holy Spirit. Mary, your wife Mary. And the son is to be named Jesus. Now, I've underlined that in the PowerPoint. You can see, you shall call his name Jesus. Why is that significant? Now, the name Jesus is significant because Jesus means Savior. He is the one who will save. And he will save his people from their sins. But equally important in this sentence is the idea that you shall call his name Jesus. Why is that significant? Because in Israelite culture, when the head of the house names someone as their son, that son becomes a full and equal partner in the family. In other words, if Joseph is willing to stand before everyone and at Jesus' dedication to name him and say, he is Jesus, he is also saying, he is my son. Now, biologically, he knows and Mary knows and anyone they told would know that Jesus is not biologically Joseph's son. But in terms of inheritance and lineage from a human perspective, Jesus is now fully and officially in the line of David. So, what we're getting now is biologically he is divine but in terms of heritage and inheritance he is in the line of David. He is the son of Joseph, the son of David but he is the son of Mary, the son of God. And Matthew ends this little scene 
by pointing to the Old Testament to show this is not some fancy made-up thing that is new. He starts at verse 22 to say this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew, more than any other gospel, loves to quote the Old Testament to show how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Matthew quotes it 47 times. Mark, Luke, and John, I think the most, either of the other gospels quote, specifically quote the Old Testament is 14 times. But Matthew quotes the Old Testament 47 times. He's trying to show Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. What the Old Testament said, Jesus is. This word fulfill doesn't always have to mean some sort of prediction and then fulfillment. It can mean that, but it doesn't only mean that. One of the best ways to understand this this word is to reverse the order of the syllables and to understand it this way. Jesus fills full the meaning of the Old Testament. So all this, all this that happened where Matthew describes Joseph taking Mary as his wife, naming Jesus, putting him uh, into the line of David in terms of inheritance, all of this was to fill full what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God is with us. Okay. What's going on here? Verse 24. When Joseph got up, when Joseph woke, when Joseph got up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he did what the angel told him to do. He called his name Jesus. He put him into the line of David. So how does this fulfill Isaiah 7.14? Well, if we look specifically at the Old Testament context of Isaiah 7.14, what is What is Isaiah doing here? In chapter 7, chapter 7 is a section in the book of Isaiah. It's really chapter 7 and 8 and 9 form one continuous uh, story or situation. And that situation was the king in Judah at that time was a guy named Ahaz. And foreign armies from Israel in the north and Egypt in the south, they were coming to converge on Judah and they were going to wipe them out. And so the prophet Isaiah comes to the king, King Ahaz, and God speaks through Isaiah and prophesies through Isaiah that Judah is going to be delivered from these two enemies that are coming to destroy them. 
and God tells King Ahaz to ask for a sign, some sort of sign that will prove that what God said he would do, he would do. And Ahaz doesn't believe God. He refuses to ask for a sign. No, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I don't, I, I don't think this is going to happen. These armies are too big. These armies are too strong. I don't believe that God will save us. And it's at this point that God says, okay, you don't want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign that I'm going to give you is, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now in chapter 8 of Isaiah, Isaiah himself has a son. And before that son grows up, God defeats those armies and they are gone. And the idea there is God was with us. He was on our side. He took care of us. But now Matthew looks back on that event and he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus is the filling full of that sign of God's protection. Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of the son who is born to save his people. He's not simply going to beat up the Romans and get rid of the Romans. He is God himself coming to save his people. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, physically present with us. Isaiah's son signified God was on our side, but now Jesus fills full the meaning of that prophecy and he is God with us. He is the savior, Jesus. That is scene number one. Now we're skipping over a couple of parts of the story because we're gonna look at those later as I said in um, a couple of weeks. Uh, when the wise men are the focus. But I want to continue this story of Joseph. So scene two takes place in Matthew 2, 13 to 15, where Joseph takes Jesus to Egypt. Here's what the text says. Now, when they had departed, and the they of this verse refers to the wise men who came to find the baby Jesus. When the wise men had left Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So we've got Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem. And the wise men have come to see him, but now there is grave danger for Jesus because Herod wants to kill him. So again, we get a dream from an angel who speaks to Joseph, the father in the family, and says, take the child, take Mary, and go to Egypt. Egypt. 
Why Egypt? Egypt is under the Roman Empire, but it's a different person in charge in Egypt, not um, Herod. So what does math or what does uh, Joseph do? Verse fourteen, he got up and took the child and his mother right away while still in the middle of the night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Hmm. So, I can understand what's going on here. Jesus is in danger. The angel comes to Joseph and says, take the baby Jesus, take his mother, run away to Egypt. Now, you and I could probably go to Egypt today faster, well, maybe not with COVID, but in normal times, we could probably go to Egypt faster than Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus could go from Bethlehem to Egypt. 75 miles, minimum 75 miles, they would have had to travel to get from Bethlehem to cross the border into Egypt. No minivan, no plane, no train, but Joseph, the just and righteous man, does what he has to do. Now, if it were me, maybe I'm not a just and righteous man, but I'd be thinking, my life stinks. My life stinks. I've got this wife who had a son, and I know, and she knows, that this is the Son of God, but all these other people are like, <laughs> that's that guy. And now we've got to move all of our stuff, which probably wasn't very much anyway, but we've got to move and we've got to go all the way down to Egypt because people are trying to kill us now. This is not a happy life. And yet, at the end of this part of the story, they stay there for some time, doesn't say specifically how long, but Matthew points out that this was to fill full or fulfill what the Lord had spoken in Hosea 11, verse 1. The last one was from Isaiah. This one is from Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Why would he quote Hosea 11, verse 1? Well, if we look at the Old Testament and we look at Hosea chapter 11, Hosea 11 is where God, at the very beginning, verse 1, God is reminding Israel how he brought the nation, his son. Israel is God's son. God reminds Israel how he brought the nation out of Egypt and cared for them. And as you work your way through chapter 11, we come to verse 9 and verse 10, and God is threatening judgment and disaster on the people because of the Assyrians, yet because he is God and not a man, he looks to a time in the future where he will have compassion on his people, and like a lion he will roar and his children will return to him. So, in other words, in chapter 11 of Hosea, it starts out by saying, I took care of you in the past, 
There's going to be some danger now, but I'm going to make sure to take care of you in the future. And Matthew remembers this. And now Joseph is taking Jesus to Egypt to protect him, to take care of him because of the imminent danger. And says, hmm, this fulfills what God prophesied about his people. That out of Egypt I called my son. I took care of them in the past. I'm going to take care of them in the future. So how is this fulfilled in Jesus? Jesus becomes the true son. Israel was the failing son. Their disobedience led to judgment and disaster. But Jesus is the true son, the ultimate son that God cares for. And now we begin to see that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the one who is summing up and living the Old Testament. Jesus is summing up and living again before our eyes what the Old Testament has to say. So finally, in scene three, Joseph returns Jesus to Israel. So he's got this son. He brings him into the family legally to be part of the line of David. Everybody's laughing at him. He has to run away to Egypt because people are trying to kill Jesus. And now finally, they get to come back. And this is in verses 19 to 23 says in verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. The language of that last part of what the angel says, word for word, is what was spoken to Moses in the Old Testament when he fled from Egypt and people wanted to kill him and they said, it's okay, you can come back now and save your people because those who sought to kill you are dead. The same language used for Joseph is now used for Jesus. Take the, get up, take the child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he got up, and he took the child and his mother, and he made the 75-mile journey back. They had settled there. He, I'm sure he had worked there and all of those things, and now they have to pick up, and they have to come all the way back. But wait a minute, it gets worse. Verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So his home base is in Judah. His hometown is Bethlehem. He thinks, great, we're going to go back from Egypt. We'll finally get away from all these foreigners and we'll go back to our hometown and we'll settle in and everything will be great. But as they're traveling, traveling along, he realizes, yeah, Herod is dead, 
But his son, Archelaus, is super cruel too. And there's a very good chance we're going to get killed if we go there. So he was afraid to go there. And so the angel comes to him again in another dream and says, don't go there. Go to the district of Galilee. Where is Galilee? If you remember from last Sunday, Judah's down here in the south. Here's the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. So Judah's down here. Galilee's way up here. And remember what we said last week about Galilee? What a dump. It's a hole. It's a terrible place. All these, there's corruption there. It's a place where everybody's a criminal. It's a dump. But the angel instructs him in a dream to go to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived there in a city called Nazareth, the dump of all dumps in the dump. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What a dump. And yet, even in that, Matthew says, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So what does a Nazarene signify? Matthew, there's not one verse that Matthew is pointing to here. Before he had pointed to one specific verse, Isaiah 7:14, Hosea 11 verse 1. But now he talks about the prophets in general. He's not identifying one specific reference because if you read all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised or scorned. Nazareth is a place, if you come from there, you're scorned. You are despised. Even in the book of Acts, when they describe Jesus or Jesus' followers as from the sect of the Nazarene, they are not saying anything nice about those people. They are saying, these are followers of the guy from the dump. This is a scornful, terrible place. And this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that he would be despised and rejected. Nazareth was a place of scorn and disrespect. But on top of that, there's a little play on words here. Because in Isaiah 11 verse 1, the same letters as are in Nazareth, the first part of Nazareth, N, Z, R, Nazareth. The Hebrew root word for the word branch comes. Now you say, well, that sounds kind of weird. What are you, what are you talking about? Isaiah 11 verse 1 talks about a prophecy that Isaiah makes that the Messiah will come from humble obscurity. The stump of Jesse, which had been cut off, a root or a branch. Branch, the word for branch is a netzer. Nazarene, netzer. 
from this humble place, from this humble root will come a branch and this will be the Messiah that will bear fruit and save his people from their sins. So we've seen three scenes. Three scenes where Joseph names a son. Joseph takes a son to Israel or to Egypt. And then finally where Joseph brings his son back to Israel. All three scenes fulfill the Old Testament. What does that have to do with me? Well, on a, I'll call it a moral level, Joseph, first of all, becomes an example to us. Joseph did what God called him to do. Every time God told him to get up, he got up. It wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. It wasn't his first choice. But he showed he was a man of faith by what he did. So let me ask you, what get up is God asking you to do? And are you willing to be faithful to do what God asks you to do? I mentioned at the very beginning, Joseph is a person who never, ever speaks in the Bible. All we ever see is what he did. Joseph took a small but important role in fulfilling God's plan. I don't like to quote from movies, but I'm going to quote from a movie now. At the very beginning of a movie, don't ever watch it, it's too violent, but at the very beginning of this movie, it's called Gladiator. When the leader gladiator is, or his name is, I forget his name now, Marcus Aurelius, or that Marcus Aurelius is the king. Anyway, the leader of the army goes to the army and he says to them, what you do today will echo in eternity. Joseph, we don't know anything that happens after this. All we know is that in the moment when he was needed, he was faithful. And what he did that day echoes in eternity. So I ask you again, not everyone is called to be preeminent or on the stage or have all the lights on them, but every believer has a calling. There's something that God wants you to do. And what you do today echoes in eternity. So when God calls you to get up, what are you going to do? Do what he says. Now that's about Joseph specifically. But the big picture, why is this in the gospel of Matthew? Why do Matthew and Luke spend all this time telling us about when Jesus was a baby? Why don't they just focus on all the cool stuff he did when he was older? Walking on water, doing miracles, all those other things. Why this? Because the birth story of Jesus relives the life of Israel only better. Like Abraham's son, he is born in a miraculous way only better. Like Jacob, he goes down to Egypt 
under the faithful protection of someone named Joseph. Only better. Like Moses, he survives the slaughter of his generation and comes out of Egypt to save his people. Now, if we had time and we were going through the whole book of Matthew or even the next few chapters, like Israel, he goes through the waters. They went through the Red Sea. He goes through a baptism. You say, David, that sounds kind of stretching it. Well, 1 Corinthians 10 talks about they were all baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Jesus goes through a baptism. Why does Jesus get baptized? Jesus isn't a sinner. Jesus doesn't need to repent. Why does Jesus go through a baptism? He tells John, I must fulfill all righteousness. Why is, how is Jesus fulfilling all righteousness by going through a baptism? Because he is reliving the life of Israel. What happens immediately after Jesus is baptized? He goes into the wilderness in chapter 4 for 40 days and 40 nights. How long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. Jesus is reliving the life of Israel. As soon as he comes out of the wilderness, he sits down on a mountain. Where did Israel go when they were coming out of the wilderness? To a mountain where God gave them the rules of the kingdom. And Jesus, in Matthew 5 to 7, gives to his people the rules of his kingdom. And he starts by blessing them and blessing them and blessing them. And at verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says of himself, I have not come to destroy the law, and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. So what are we saying? Jesus relived the law and fulfilled the prophets. He is the true son of Abraham, the new and better Moses, the faithful son the ultimate son of David, the son of God. It is he who came to save his people from their sins. All our hope is in him. So let me ask you, have you put your faith and trust in the one who is all of these things? All our hope is in him. Have you put your hope and your trust, and giving your life to Jesus. That would be the greatest Christmas gift you could receive. I want to close by reading the end of Isaiah's prophecy. We started with Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. I want to end with Isaiah's ending part of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Matthew actually quotes the beginning of this in Matthew Chapter 4. Jesus, all of these great things that he is, he's also the sufferer, the one who is scorned. And he lived amongst the Gentiles who become 
co-members of his kingdom. And Isaiah chapter 9 predicts this. I'll read it for you and then we will close. Isaiah 9.1 says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your zeal in not leaving us in our sin and in desperate need of a savior. That you were willing to be more than just God on our side. You were willing to be God with us. We thank you for Jesus and for his coming. We thank you for the role that Joseph played in fulfilling Jesus' retelling of the story of Israel as the faithful son, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. We bless you and glorify you for all that you have shown us from your word and um, how you are so loving and gracious to us. I pray that we would respond in faith and trust to the only one who can truly save. All our hope is in you. We thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.